Nice. So last last week we Bismillah alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salam wa ala rasulillah. It's nice to see everyone. It's also very warming and reassuring to be with all of you. Alhamdulillah. Uh, NYU, alhamdulillah, even though it is virtually, we ask Allah, you know, to facilitate, inshallah, every illness has its cure. And inshallah, hopefully by the summer, you know, we'll be back to doing some awesome programming. Um, we're reading, of course, from uh, Imam Al-Ghazali's Al-Mulkad min al-Dalal al-Muwassila ila al-Izzati wal-Jala, right? Which is deliverance from or salvation from misguidance, and then arriving to a station of honor, uh, alhamdulillah, and, and like the sense of regalness. And last week, or two weeks ago, we were reading where he says, you know, he becomes extremely vulnerable, and he starts to open up um, certain aspects of his life, and he says, know then, my brothers, that the diversity in religion, beliefs and religions, and the variety of doctrines and sects which divide men are like a deep ocean. And we went through this and we talked about the Hadith of the 70 through 6. And then last week, he says from the period of adolescence, that is to say, previous to him reaching his 20th year to the present time, when at this time he was around 50, I have ventured into this vast ocean. The vast ocean here is certainty. Like, how do you arrive to certainty? And I have fearlessly sounded its depths, and like a resolute diver, I have penetrated its darkness and dared its dangers and abysses. And here he's talking about doubt. And he refers to doubt as like this endless uh, trap, which a person may never, you know, pull out of. But he mentions, and we talked about this two weeks ago, how he bravely set out to do this. And, and he mentions, and we talked about this was something that you were supposed to do in your diaries, you know. He talks about, I have interrogated the beliefs of each sect and scrutinized the mysteries of each doctrine. So he does something I think that's very important for this age, right? And that is that we don't dehumanize people, but we understand people. We, we can have the budget to talk and engage people without feeling so insecure in ourselves that we can't. That means that we're not strong in our own faith. In order to disentangle truth from error, right? So... We live in an age now, which really some people are saying is the battle of fact versus fiction. And Al-Ghazali says that this is the problem of his age. Because in his lifetime, the number of religious groups and sects that are surrounding him are, are, are several. Like they're, they're large in number. And in order to disentangle that, he says, you know what, I, go, I went to the source of each one. And I engaged it, whether it was intra or interfaith oriented, so that I could disentangle truth from error. And here, the idea of it being like tangled up is a great metaphor, right? Like it's just like a big mess. And understand what is orthodoxy from hearsay. I have never met one who maintained the hidden meaning of the Quran al Baltaniya, and I talked about them before, without investigating the nature of his belief. Nor a partisan. And, you know, this translation is kind of bad. It means a partisan is a vahiri, someone who is, you know, like just believing in the literal meanings of the Quran and Sunnah, who holds on to the exterior sense of religious text without talking to him and trying to understand where he came from. And there's no philosopher whose system I have not fathomed, nor theologian, 
the intricacies of whose doctrine I have not followed. So my question to you last time was for you to think about like, who are the people that you need to talk to today? Right? What are, what are the people around you? If you were to be Ghazali in 2021, in your early 20s, who is it that, you know, you would rightfully need to talk to in order to like understand them properly? And I think this is a really powerful paragraph on how to model deeper thinking and also how to be invested in people. When we, you know, read some of the statements of this horrible killer in Atlanta, one of the things that becomes very clear is that he had projected meaning on women and he had projected meaning on Asians. He had projected even a, a in, in something that's not talked about is how, you know, a an extreme form of Christianity drove him to come to these conclusions. But he wasn't talking to people. So who are the most important demographics you think, if you're to untangle truth from falsehood, you would need to talk to in 2021 as Generation Z, young millennials. What did you come up with? Ask you to think about it or to write about it, right? If you were Al-Ghazali now in Manhattan or Brooklyn or Queens or Jersey or wherever you are, and you are attempting to disentangle truth from error, who are the people, Muslim and not Muslim, that you would need to engage in a conversation with? That is definitely not a rhetorical question. So feel free to, to share. You can type it also uh, in the chat box if you feel, you know, somewhat trepidatious. But who are people you, you feel like you may need to talk to in order to be in this Ghazalian journey for, to, to come to conviction? I guess I can go first. Uh, so for me, it's more of like a personal thing. Um, so like my dad is Shia and my mom is Sunni. Um, and like growing up, like I just had more influence for my mom just because I was around her more. Um, so I think like, like, stuff, like unconsciously, like that's just what I lean towards and that's just like, when I started becoming like more interested in religion and reading times one more, that's just like where I went as my first sources. Um, and I remember like there was this like Al Maghrib event at NYU and it was about Imam Muslim. And my dad was like going to drop me off to go into a train station to go there. And I remember he like kind of told me this whole thing about how like I'm going to learn about Imam Muslim, but why am I not learning about like the first Imams? Why am I not learning about um Ali Khan and all of that? And like I mean, I was like super um I don't know, annoying and I I I was like defensive towards it and I was like, oh why are you trying to force me and like, you know, like direct me and like, I don't know, make it a competition in terms of who am I learning about and like who am I learning from? 
Um, and I feel like I took that kind of defensive stance for a long time without like actually having a reason for it. Um, so I think personally, like even to just like um, better my understanding of my dad and like, you know, um, our relationship, I think like going back to that and trying to actually learn um, and just being sincere in that, I think personally that's important for me. So that's like the group that I would like go to and talk to. And believe it or not, we can't untangle, we can't disentangle religion from family. It's very difficult without being a little bit careful. Even as a convert, you know, when I first, when I first converted, I wish now hindsight's 2020, I had listened better, you know, even though I don't agree with their faith and I don't agree with the practices of my family, being a better listener probably would have done a lot more to help the situation. Keep in mind, I was, was pretty young. I think that's very powerful. Thank you for sharing. And I think also one of the things that we've tried to talk to religious speakers and teachers about is that we do have a large number of Muslims whose parents are Sunni and Shia. So when they go on to a tangent, and, it, and certainly we have our differences. We can We can talk about these differences in a way that's divorced from emotion and just say these are like these are our honest differences right but when we go on tangents and attack what does that do to the the child in the middle of that relationship right so try to tell people you know you may not realize it but there is also a third what we call sushis right sunni shia we have sushis in the community mashallah and your your language and your rhetoric can hold your truth without being like irresponsible. I don't know if that makes sense, uh, what I'm saying. Um, who else wants to jump in? Like, I, I would say, you know, I would like to have a conversation with some of the atheists, especially some of the more, um, even on the neoliberal side of it, right? Kind of the slick atheism that we see that tries to pass itself off in certain ways. Um, I would like to have a conversation with some of those guys, some of those people. Anyone else, like, you know, in this important time in your life, you do have a lot going on. Are there any other, is there any groups, people, religions, philosophers that you feel in the Gazadian spirit you would need to speak to to disentangle truth from error? Awesome. So he says, in order to disentangle truth from error and orthodoxy from heresy, I've never met anyone, and he mentions different groups, different ideologies, Muslims, non-Muslims, innovators, apostates, right? Except he says, I took the time to have a conversation with them. We inadvertently may harm people when we judge them without having a conversation with them or making sure that we understand who they are. That's why in the science of hadith, there's a great principle that if, if hadith scholars come across someone who's called majhulul hal, who's unknown, they'll say that this person is weak, not because of character, but because the person is not known. So they will actually say, 
that the person's character is assumed to be good because that's the right of people. The right of people is a good assumption, but they're just unknown. She's like really, really nice, mashallah. And then uh, Al-Ghazari, he continues and he talks about Tasawwuf and he says that it has no secrets into which I have not penetrated. He was actually very critical of certain forms of Tasawwuf. The one who is devoted to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with great love. Um, then he talks about the atheists who have not been able to conceal from him the reason of their unbelief, meaning like I engaged them. And I would say in many ways that oftentimes religious communities, irrational reactions to things is because they're not engaging. They're not talking. Al-Ghazali is teaching us something very important. We look at uh, an America that continues to implode into cynicism, uh, decentralization, um, the lack of, of any type of commonality, but largely cynicism, right? He... He's teaching us something here. Have conversations with people. And that, that's a great quality. It's not easy. I don't, I don't claim to be great at having conversations with people, but I just would never imagine, I don't know about you guys, like Imam Ghazali talking to an atheist? Imam Al-Ghazali like talking to like some like weird philosopher guy? But I think that's a remedy for this era is learning how to communicate. Because when we communicate, then we humanize, mashallah. Today I was doing an interview for uh, NPR. And the guy that was talking to me before the interview, he works for NPR, and so he was just asking me questions. Because I did an interview a year ago with them about like COVID and how certain Muslims are, 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 are you know, shouldering COVID. So they want to come like a year later, right? So as we're talking and we created kind of like a common thread, he just says to me, he's like, man, one of the things that I'm dealing with is guilt that I'm still alive. And, and I think what allowed that conversation to happen is that we talked. And he told me like, I'm Jewish. He starts to talk about his Jewish identity, but it became clear because we were actually having a conversation. Like he was asking me like for, for religious advice. I was like, dude, I'm an imam, dude. I'm not a rabbi, dude. But we, we connected. And I, I shared with him, like I, I went through very similar experiences when my, my wife had COVID. My, my daughter and my mother-in-law had COVID. Like I was, I had to leave my house. So I think that in an age where we're quick to cancel one another, perhaps that is only amplifying the issue. There's actually rules in Islam for hijrah, for abandoning a human being, subhanAllah. And I think those rules are really, really there because human beings are valuable. Allah says, like human beings, we value human beings. And perhaps instead of us just following the contemporary trends of the right or the left. And again, it's strange that political ideology and political nomenclature have taken over how we act to everything. Whereas religious nomenclature actually is much more vast and much more um, in depth than say, recent iterations of political theology. Religions have been around longer.
So the thirst for knowledge, he says, was innate in me from an early age. It was like a second nature implanted by God without any will on my part. And no sooner had I emerged from, you know, childhood than I had already broken the fetters of tradition and freed myself from hereditary beliefs. Oftentimes as a convert to Islam, I, I talk to people who are born Muslim and they say like, man, you're lucky, like you chose it. I inherited it. Do any of you feel that way? Like you never really had the opportunity to make a choice for yourself. That something was kind of given to you, alhamdulillah. But have you actually had the opportunity to break, as he says, the hereditary chains? Any thoughts on that? Awesome. Um, uh, sure, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, like, personally, I think for me, like, the only contention I have about that is that because I almost inherited it, I took it for granted for a really long time. Um, so, like, like, you know, like, I, I was, you know, I would say I'm Muslim, I'm born into a Muslim family, but I didn't actually ever, like, understand what that meant. And I feel like um, maybe for converts, it's like, as soon as you, like, you already know the meaning of that, right? Like, you make that decision for yourself. So it's like, from day one, like, that means a lot to you. Um, whereas for me, like, like, I know it's bad to say, but for a long time, that didn't really mean much to me other than just the fact that this is what I was born into, you know? So I think, like, the only thing that makes me upset about that is that, like, I neglected it for a long time. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. And, you know, asking people here in the chat, like, what is, what is it about Islam that has allowed you to appreciate its hereditarial component? Right? Like, uh, I asked a question, but, but only one person responded. So I'm just going to build on the next question. And that is, so if, with the assumption that if people have grappled with the idea, well, this is how I was born. What was it about Islam that allowed you to move beyond it just being like a hereditary blessing to, hey, this is something like, I believe. This is something that I hold to be true. What was kind of the most important factor in helping you make that decision or moment in um, your life? For me personally, I uh, went to an Islamic school until eighth grade, so it was always like um, something that I was just used to, and like my entire environment was just uh, always Muslims. So when I went to public school, um, it was like a culture shock, uh, totally like different values, and like everything was like really different. Um, so then I had to like choose the people that I decided to make my friends and um, that I would like listen to and and uh, have conversations with and like uh, the people that would influence me. So I, uh, I think at that point I had to decide for myself, like, uh, was I going to be associated with people that would bring me closer to Islam or people that uh, were just like more fun um, and would like, I don't know, like give me like some sort of popularity or something like that. Mm. Um, so I think I did choose a lot of the people that would bring me closer to Islam and like 
things like that. Uh, but yeah, it was that culture shock that allowed me to, to like make it more about myself and less about um, growing up Muslim. Yeah, there's, there's great value in literature, right? And one of the, the values of literature is that when we read about evil, we're able to appreciate good, you know? And I, I really appreciate you sharing that. Do you, do you feel that the Islamic school that you went to your, 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 in your formative years helped you make that choice more than like this is bad? Or was it the fact like this is bad, I don't want to be like this? Um, I think it did help because um, while I was in the Islamic school, I would hang out with the people that I found uh, were more um, inclined to like learning about Islam and less uh, just like, oh, I was forced to be Muslim um, and that's why I'm here. Um, so it did help me to like create that foundation that I was actually looking uh, to be a good Muslim on my own. Mm. Um, yeah, and I think I enjoyed like lectures and and going to classes and all that. I, I, you know, go ahead. Sorry, you were saying something. No, no, that was it. You know, I feel like, you know, I was like in a madrasa world for like 10 years. And my wife likes to make fun of me, Miriam, because like I know nothing about 1990s, like mid 90s on popular culture. I know nothing. Like I was, I don't know songs. I don't know movies. I thought Pulp Fiction was a drink. Um, really just had no idea about anything. So she likes to tease me. And then I remember coming back, finally kind of leaving a madrasa life in my 40s and living in the Bay Area and just feeling like, man, it's the wild, wild west for the nafs. You know what I mean? Like, but that allowed me to appreciate like <laughs> what I had learned, you know? And the things I had seen. Um, someone's typing in, and I think it's Rahma. What does it take to have that kind of open, active listening, non-judgmental conversation with someone whose views, when acted upon, have caused you pain? So I think that's where we want to draw the line. Um, I think Imam Ghazali's conversations are largely theoretical and philosophical. He's not talking necessarily about from what we know, people who are enacting physical pain, emotional pain on him. So I don't, I don't think that that's necessary. That may be therapeutic, but that's, that's up to the person. There's certain people in my own family who've hurt me in ways I can't talk to them. And it's very normal to have a shell to protect ourselves. So I, I don't, I don't want anyone to think that, um, this is anything more than beyond like say theology philosophy um and so on I, I do think that if america is going to survive they're going to have to be people in the middle who seek redemption seek forgiveness people forgive them when they feel comfortable forgiving them people who have not done anything wrong this is where you're going to find, I think, conversations. I, I don't know about the extremes. I, I I don't know. I can't tell anyone what to do or how to how to handle those situations. 
but I think that's a very profound question. When the person who killed uh, Sayyidina Hamza came to the Prophet wasallam, the Prophet couldn't talk to him. Just like, man, <laughs> you're Muslim, everything's cool, but like, kill my uncle, right? And I don't think we, 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 we necessarily need to tell people when it comes to people that have hurt them how to how to remedy that maybe with their therapist or with someone who's familiar with the issue but here al-ghazari's kind of talking about ideological challenges that may have not spilled over into like physical pain emotional pain hope that kind of answers that question a little bit better and i think also the prophets are a great example in the quran of their ability to try to talk. قَالَ يَا قَوْمِ right? Speak to their people. فَلَعَلَّكَ بَاخِعٌ نَفْسَكَ عَلَىٰ آثَارِهِمْ إِلَّمْ يُؤْمِنُوا بِهَذَا الْحَدِيثِ أَسَفَ Right? Like, you'll kill yourself, O Muhammad Wasallam, trying to like, take care of these people. And that's a balance. Um, Imam al-Ghazali continues and he says, an interior force drove me to research the reality of original human nature and that of beliefs, which derive from conformism to the authority of parents and teachers. Now I think you can see why I think for your, and even for me, our age demographic and your age demographic, like where he's coming from. And that's why I said to you, there is this strong belief I'm not sure if you can hear my daughter back there trying to sing. <laughs> um, sounds like we're on an episode of The Voice. But Al-Ghazali says, an in interior force drove me to research the reality of people and that of beliefs which derive from conformism, taqlid, to the authority of parents and teachers. And, you know, certainly in our early 20s and in our late teens, we begin to start to formulate steps towards autonomy, especially vis-a-vis -vis our parents in ways that are respectful, but also allow us to grow. I think um, the story earlier about going to the Maghrib course and, you know, your father giving, I'm sure from his heart, his legitimate concern and having to navigate that space, the beauty is that he let you go, mashallah. Tells you the kind of person he is. But Al-Ghazari says that one of the things that occurred during his life is that he was driven to understand people, that he was driven to delve into beliefs vis-a-vis -vis the idea of conformism rooted in parents and teachers. And trying to discern amongst the elements which are taught by rote and accepted without question. Which discrimination gives rise, rise to so much controversy regarding what is true and what is false. What he means is translation is not that great is fanaticism, right? So people learn something rotely, they accept it, they just believe it, and then they fanatically defend it. He's like, no, no, no. I respect, of course, the authority of parents and teachers and other people, but I was driven to, to dive beyond that. 
I would honestly say that I have probably met only two people in my life willing to do something like that. Even, even just theoretically. Outside of converts, right? Converts, they, they obviously did something like this uh, in their life. What are some of the things, if you could tell parents, what would be the most important qualities they could have that would allow you to negotiate your autonomy and still be respectful of them, right? So, and that's very difficult because these are two opposites, right? One is like me, these are my babies, right? My daughter's like, I'm 20, I'm not your baby anymore. <laughs> no, you're still my baby. I changed your diapers, right? I put you to sleep, you threw up on me. Um, what would be the most important qualities? And I believe, and I really hope, I know, I know you're busy with school and midterms and everything, but, but I really, there's a reason that I chose this book for you guys. There's this is a very, very important reason that I hope you can discover for yourself. And a lot of it is found here. Because I would say that at least 40 to 50% of the questions I get from people of all age demographics in the Muslim community is about balancing authority and autonomy. Whether it's parents and their, their children or even in marriages. Right? Authority, autonomy. Authority, autonomy. So what are... If we're going to, let's say, you know, like you're, you're playing NBA 2K1, right? You get to create the perfect basketball player. What would be the qualities of a good parent that allows someone in their early 20s to have autonomy, but still be guided when needed by their parents? What do you think the first quality is? I can give you an answer that most people tell me when I ask this question, but I would like to hear it from you. Yeah, Shu'aib said it, listening. You know what? Listening, honestly, whether it's married couples, whether it's parents, whether it's children, everybody wants to be heard. <laughs> and I think that's the beauty of what Ghazali did. Ghazali is not saying only I went and talked to these people. I went and heard these people. So listening without the intention to disagree. I think it's a great quality. So listening. Nice. Active listening, right? Deliberate. Deliberate listening. What else? That's a great quality. Thank you, uh, Shui, for sh sharing. What else? Kind of like going hand-in-hand -hand with listening. Um, I would say like creating space for you to kind of just learn some things on your own. Um, Cause I feel like a lot of times experiences impact you a lot more than just like having someone to give you all the answers. Um, and I think that's something that parents try to do a lot. Obviously, you know, with good intentions, they try to guide you and protect you from things that they've experienced. Mm. Um, as they should, but I think sometimes like it doesn't have the same impact unless you kind of go through, I mean, not, not to say make us go through crazy things just to learn from them, but, you know, kind of give us the space to um, experience things on our own and then, you know, to 
support us through that. Can we say giving people the space to fail? Yeah, exactly. You know, when I hire people uh, for a company that I, I operate, one of the questions I ask them, especially with it's Muslims, is I, I try to hire a Muslim, I'll be honest with you. I believe in, in nation building. And one of the questions I ask is, tell me about your failures. And they freak out. <laughs> and at times, some of them have actually said, I have not been allowed to fail. That scares me. Right? Because failure, failure can be a great teacher. Failure makes us thirsty to, you know. That's why when people play video games, when they die, they want to do it. They want to start over again. Right? Well, failure is an opportunity. So I do, I do, I do understand the dilemma of parents having children. It's not easy. But I, I, I like to think of my job as a parent as being kind of a movable structure that circles the child, but they, they never bump into the wall. Like it moves with them, you know, unless there's like extreme situations. And I think also when our parents give us the freedom to do things like you've mentioned, does it also increase our confidence a little bit? I don't know if anyone wants to chime in. Someone also like, even if I messed up, I've been trusted, right? Yeah, I think that's also like a really important aspect where it's like you're building that trust because oftentimes it feels like like your parents might not trust you um, when it comes to like discovering new things or trying to learn new things or do different things from perhaps how they've always done them. I think mm. that kind of makes you like, I don't know, just more receptive to what they tell you because then you know that they're actually understanding you um, and allowing you to like navigate the different things on your own a little bit. Yeah, and nobody trusts the, the cheerleader like they trust the trainer, right? The cheerleaders are there only when people score, but the trainer's there also when you get injured, you know? And I think also when parents teach the value of failure, they also create trust. Because I've been there with my, my own father. Um, you know, I would lie to him because I didn't want him to know I failed as a young person. Because it was just, <laughs> he just did not want to know that I failed, right? So there's a lack of trust and it, it starts to kind of turn into this vicious cycle um, someone wrote, understanding that learning doesn't end when you become an adult. What does that mean? Uh, I think that's Reham. Feel free to yeah. share what that means. I think that's powerful. Thanks. I was thinking along the lines of um, a lot of times when, a lot of times, like at least in my experience, um, parents will assume that they know everything and then like <laughs> you come up with your own perspectives, your own ideas. So I've been shut down, um, so I think that's important. Like, just because you're the the older person in the situation doesn't mean that you know more in a particular scenario. 
Exactly. And sometimes being old means that we have less room for excuse to make mistake. Because we are supposed to have the experience. Yeah. I think that's absolutely important is to be and in, in locate yourself as a teacher, as a sheikh, as an imam, as a parent, as a young person, as an active learner. Right? Knowledge doesn't end, subhanAllah. And to realize that anybody can be your teacher. Right? And that makes for a really vibrant, awesome life. You know? Because the world is a canvas and every day you get to admire something that's on that canvas from so many different places. But especially with those that are close to us. These were really, really uh, great suggestions. Not putting down your children if they do fail. Absolutely. Failure is not really failure, right? Failure sometimes becomes the necessary ingredients in our armor. You know that, and that's my problem with, with sometimes the academic ethos. You know, if you don't get into the school, your life is over. <laughs> your life is not over, man. You know, if, if you, you know, don't do well in this thing, you know, I don't remember even one class I took in college, like the names of the classes. I remember the classes, but at that time it was just like, oh my God, like, you know, if I, if I don't do this, 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 it's like, it's all over. I don't even do what I did my degree in as my profession, like explicitly. So it's not the end of the world. Also making sure the motivation to succeed is not to please you, but for themselves. Yeah. Living vicariously through others is, is really a problem. Um, amazing. Any other qualities we'd want to add to this awesome parent that we're building listening without prejudice understanding that learning doesn't end not putting people down something that i recently read uh because i have a two-year-old as you can hear i don't know if you guys can hear in the background <laughs> she's like <laughs> she's singing uh mashallah um is that oftentimes when our children are young, we fall into this idea of like, I need me time, which is true. Yesterday, my wife and I took a staycation. I don't know if you know what a staycation is, like not really a vacation, but just like get some space, right? Alhamdulillah. But there's this really beautiful theory that says, instead of like looking for the moments that you can be away from your toddler, like I'm just gonna cook breakfast for you, you go and watch Iftahya Simsim or I don't know, whatever, man, is actually have them make breakfast with you. Like create these partnerships through working together at like really young ages. So like, even like when you're changing diapers, it's not like, oh God, change diapers, dude. You see that as like a very important moment to be together and do things together very early on. So like today I was reading Sultan Kaf in the morning and I was like, hey, just I just sat there while she's playing in the room. Like, hey, you're reading Quran with me. So creating the 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 vocabulary for being together. What I see most parents we do is we want to be together with our kids when they're grown. We weren't together when they were young or teenagers. Suddenly they're old enough to start to make their own choices, and now we wanna we wanna jump in. 
So I think something I would add to this is like working together as soon as possible on certain things and bringing each other into each other's lives. I think is extremely important. As we finish, because I really wanted to get these kind of thoughts and ideas from you, and I really appreciate you all sharing, and I can't tell you how happy uh, and invigorating it is when you actually share, right? I, I get the sense people are shy. Or, you no need to be shy, inshallah. It's a safe place. A safe space. I set the thermostat on safe. But let's read the purpose of Al-Ghazali and then next week, I promise this week or the week after, we'll talk about the idea of fitrah, right? People being born uh, onto Islam. He said, then I said to myself, my aim is to perceive the deep realities of things. I wish to seize the essence of knowledge. Actually, it means like the pure knowledge. Certain knowledge is that in which the thing known reveals itself without leaving any room for doubt or any possibility or error of illusion. Nor can the heart allow such a possibility. Man, that's a heck of a task. One must be protected from error and should be so bound to certainty that any attempt, for example, to transform a stone into gold or a stick into a serpent would not raise doubts or engender contrary probabilities. Like, I'm not going to fall for the okey-doke. I know what's what. I know very well that 10 is more than 3. If anyone tries to dissuade me saying, no, 3 is more than 10, and wants to prove it by changing it in front of me, by showing a stick into a serpent, even if I saw him changing it, still this fact would engender no doubt about my knowledge. Would not cause any doubt. Certainly I would be astonished at such a power, but I would not doubt what I knew. You know, my teacher from West Africa, I have a lot of love for him. He was a great mentor to me. And sometimes he would teach me, right? And I'm, I mean, you have to think about it for, for a new Muslim I'm going to try to explain this in a way it's clear. It's like Islam is like largely beyond the purview of my imagination. That may sound strange to you, but maybe if you were to think about Christianity or Judaism or that's like beyond the purview of your imagination. So as a, as a new Muslim, you're, you're, you're building that like step by step by step. Your understanding of what Islam is is like really this process. So I was like kind of innocent. You know what I mean? I, I'll tell you a funny story. And I know we're running out of time. My apologies. It's like my first Ramadan. Because before that, I wasn't going to the mosque. I was still DJing in clubs and stuff. And I was growing in my Islam. So I started to go. That first Ramadan was very transformative. I learned how to pray. Because you pray so much, you know. How to make wudu and everything. So I thought like, man, Muslims are amazing. All these people come to the masjid like, yo, they be rolling deep. You know, so the day after Eid, I go to the Fajr prayer and there's nobody at the masjid. Or I went to the Maghrib prayer, I think. There was no one at the masjid. Nobody. The key, this is an old student masjid. The key was like above the little lamp on the, in the front. This is before Islamophobia took off. So there was a key. You could take it, open the door. So I went in, didn't know how to make the adhan or anything, and just prayed and left. And then as I was leaving, I said, yo, they must have all gone to the other mosque. 
I thought like oh, <laughs> all those people were praying somewhere else because the whole month they were there, right? So to give you an idea of kind of the innocence. So my teacher would teach me and sometimes he would say like, okay, min sherri. Now I'd be like, min sherri, it's min sherri. He'd be like, are you sure? Are you sure? And I would buckle and be like, no, 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 you're right, you're right, you're right. I was right, he was wrong, right? But when I would do that and tell him, no, 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 you're right, he would say, never do this again. The purpose of learning is for you to know what's right. So there will be times when things that were explicitly wrong, he would state them. And he would say to me, is this right or wrong? And I would say, it's right because he was the teacher. And he would say to me, don't do that. Don't do that. The purpose of knowledge is to give you clarity. So Imam al-Ghazali says, Thus I came to know that whatever is known without this kind of certainty is doubtful knowledge. Not reliable and safe. That all knowledge subject to error is not sure and certain. And that's what we're going to pick up next week. Although we did miss part of our reading that we're going to get back to uh, two weeks from now. Talk about fitra. And then we're going to start to talk about how he took on this incredible undertaking of going through doubt and reaching certainty. It's actually really a powerful text and it really allows you to appreciate the kind of person he was, right? The kind of person he was. Any questions or thoughts before we let everybody go? Barakallahu feekum, inshallah. Now someone's crying. She's not singing. Something's going on. Zakalaw khair. Yes, go ahead. I was gonna ask if you have like a prompt for us to think about for the next time. I'm actually gonna send you guys an article. Um and I'm gonna put a question on that article. It's an article about fact versus fiction. Um and how we can sift through the information tidal wave <laughs> that, that comes at us, how can we sift through that and find like factual things or things that are close to factual in a time where, I mean, and this doesn't, this doesn't only impact like white supremacists. Do you guys remember early on in COVID-19, there was this thing about eating samak if you're from Iran, you know what is samak, you know, eating samak and it will cure COVID-19 and everybody was spreading it. Like, how is that going to cure COVID-19? So there was no like critical thinking. It's just like, yeah, it's going to cure COVID-19. Let's take it. So I'm going to share with you that article. And I think what you want to think about is, I think this last paragraph, if you can scroll up a little where he says, you know, my aim is to perceive the deep reality of things. How do you perceive the deep reality of things? Especially your generation and my generation, which has been flooded with the idea of just being shallow. Right? Everything's fast. Everything's shallow. And we'll pick it up, inshallah, in two weeks. Barakallahu fikum. 
May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless all of you and increase you and keep you safe and good luck with your academic pursuits. Ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to facilitate it for you. And if you're having any challenges at home or anywhere, ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to, to make it easy for you. And I'm here, as you know, at the university. If you need any help, always feel free to reach out. We're, we're here to help you, inshallah. Zakallahu khairan. Wa sallallahu wa sallam wa barakala Sayyidina Muhammad. Wa sallam alaikum. Thank you.